if you ask anybody in Concerned United Birth Parents, ask any, ask Brian Stanton, ask any of the adoptees that know me from the Cub group here in LA. I sat in that meeting for the first year or two after I had found my birth mom. And I would just, with my elbows on my knees, sitting in the circle, and I would just sob. And the carpet was wet. And there was just so many layers of low self-esteem, low self-worth. I, I just didn't even feel that I was worthy of my fair share of the oxygen on the planet. It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. Chris Thomason is my next guest. He graduated from the University of California, Los Angeles a few years ago and is currently a caseworker in social work. He is a translator with migrants going through the process of citizenship and one of the friendliest adoptees I know. Chris was relinquished at birth, adopted at four years old, relinquished again 10 months later when the adopted father died suddenly. By the time he reached 11 years old, Chris had been moved five times. Never having had a father, he counts seven mothers getting him to high school graduation. In this episode, Chris, through his wonderful storytelling abilities, creates a picture for us by sharing a fraction of the life events that deeply impacted him. After reuniting with his birth family 20 years ago, he discovered that the state of California has no record of his birth. He describes what being in reunion with his birth mom as a secret felt like, but why he was willing to honor her request. He credits Cub, Concern United Birth Parents, for giving him guidance during the uncharted territory of reunion. Allow me to introduce to you someone who I met in 2021 through a NAP conference, National Association of Adoptees and Parents, held in Indianapolis, and had the pleasure of seeing him again this year at the Untangling Our Roots Summit in Louisville, Kentucky. We laugh, think deeply, and hold space for the painful parts of his relinquishment and adoption journey. I love his honesty, openness, and willingness to shed light on why secrets are damaging to the human spirit. So, Chris, tell me how is it on the best coast in the world? (laughs) (laughs) Well, today's a sunny, sunny day. (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. You're not far from Brian Stanton. No, he's just 10 minutes away. He's over in Culver City, and, and I'm here in Venice, so we're, we're not that far away from each other. I love California. So, I've said it so many times, so listeners, forgive me, but... We have, a, we have a lot of problems here, but, you know, California, it's a, it, it, it's a great place for a fresh start. And if you're an artist, or you want to start a new business, or you're creative, or you want to do a startup, or make more money or you know aspire to be something better it's a great place for those kind of starts yeah i like that great place for a fresh start yeah people who are on people who are going through a divorce or they're finishing a relationship or they just they're getting off of a bad career just any of those things california has traditionally been a great place for a new start and that really kind of leads into what we're talking about today about adoption and then like that because California was such a huge place where so many young resourceless pregnant women mothers were sent statistically that kind of bears out the state had just hundreds of homes for unwed mothers up and down the state 
and again during the baby scoop era it ended up being a place where so many american families sent their pregnant unwed daughters away mm. to hide out and leave the babies and and then obviously as everybody knows you know california is terribly diverse or wonderfully diverse i should say i think somewhere like 60% of the population does not use english inside the home and our diversity is our strength that's why it's such a huge economy so again you know if you're different if you're biracial if you're you know you have seven eyeballs or whatever mm -hmm. you know it's a great place because you'll be accepted here you're not going to be judged here it is a unique place it really is yeah anyway well you're making me think about concern united birth parents which i know you know a lot about that organization mm -hmm. i'm not sure where we can start i'll ask you where do you want to start because there's so much I want to talk to you about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my story and how I got to Concern United Birth Parents. My birth mother is from the Midwest. She got pregnant when she was 19. She was in nursing college and she comes from a small town. She had a boyfriend, my birth father. And about six months before she graduated, she became pregnant and called home. She had two older brothers. Her mother was a, a school teacher and her father was a farmer. He also sold ponies. It was interesting because just a little sidetrack to this. I have two sons from a previous marriage and my older son, when he was a little kid from all through nursery school, he, he just loved horses and neither my wife or I grew up with horses. We both grew up in cities and, you know, he would wear cowboy boots all the way up until second grade. And I remember my mother-in-law used to take him to the dime store every weekend to buy those little plastic ponies. He was just into horses. And then a few years later, when I did find my birth mother, we were sitting in a, a sandwich shop one day and she said, did I ever tell you what my father did? You know, and, and he, she told me that he sold ponies and I was, aha, the missing puzzle piece. <laughs> so wow. you can't, yeah. you can't deny biology, but anyway, she called home. And she told her father that um, she was dropping out of college. And he said, why would you do that? And she said, because I'm getting married, because that would fix the problem. And he said, no, you're not. You're finishing college. She said, I can't. I'm pregnant. And he put the phone down. He wouldn't talk to her. And her mother came to the phone and started screaming, no, no, no. And the next day, one of her older brothers and her dad came to the college, about 100 miles away, drove got her home. And within a week, she was on a train to Los Angeles. And that's how I ended up being a Californian. But when she went, they kept her for about a month after she had the baby and they used to strap the girls down. They would strap their breasts down because, you know, when they weren't milking, they weren't feeding a baby, they would leak. And of course you couldn't go out in public back then. And so they, it took about a month for their breasts to dry up. And then they would, they put her back on the train and sent her back to the Midwest. And her brother picked her up at the station and drove her home. And that night she went in the house after how many months of her family not seeing her. And her mother looked at her and said, are you hungry? And when she went to bed and the next day she went back into the, the city to see if she could get enrolled back in, in nursing college. And they, they never spoke about it again. It never happened. It just didn't happen. It was a non-issue and it never happened. Anyway, that was what I just told you was what she told me, but a lot of what happened to her when she was out here, so many of the birth mothers in the Concern United Birth Parents group, they have a thread of commonality that runs through their stories. I was about four, four and a half, somewhere in there when I was adopted. Um, I don't know where I was between birth and four. I've tried to find out a little bit. I really can't. I, I mean, I, I've tried, but I, I just haven't been able to seem to find where I was. So you don't know the adoption agency or? Well, it was, it was the um, LA County children's, um, uh, what's it called? I forgot. Like, anyway, it's the, like the department yeah. of children and families. Yeah. Services. It's the largest. Yeah. It's right. the largest. I subsequently found out a few years ago too, the state has no record of my birth. You know how many of us, most of us who are adopted have an, 
an, an, an amended birth certificate. And I tried to get mine, oh, I guess about 10 years ago to go on a trip outside of the country. And when I sent away to Sacramento to get a copy of my amended birth certificate, they couldn't, I never came. And so I ended up calling. I waited a couple of months and I was on the phone for a while. And he said, you know, he just said to me, I'm, I'm really sorry, sir, but there's nothing coming up. Are you sure you were born in California? And I said, well, of course I was. And he said, I, I have no record of you being born here. So it was sent to the, it was sent to the, it was, uh, an, an investigation department and they've just never been able to find anything. I subsequently found out a few years ago that my birth mother never signed off on me. And I found out from a customer of mine who had known my adopted mother, my first adopted mother, that she had always known for years while I had worked for her that my adopted parents had to go to court because there was some kind of a wait time. I guess that's why I was so much older when they adopted me because I wasn't technically legally adoptable. Somebody was going to have to go to court and go through the wait time. And so anyway, that's what they did because she had never signed off on me. I asked my birth mom about this years ago and and she she said she doesn't remember signing anything. Anyway, I was adopted around four, four and a half. I was number three of four in the adopted family. About 10 or 11 months after they adopted me, the adopted father suddenly died at age 30. The county came up the next day and took the two older, my older brother, John, who was a foster child, and then my older adopted sister, Lori, and took them away. And the adopted mother held on to us for me and my younger sibling, Julie, for about two weeks. And then she took us down to a motel room down in South Central and put us down for a nap and drove over to her mom's house. Her mother was quite obese and she was taking care of her. She was, she was alone. And she called the caseworker and said, my husband's died. I don't have a job. I have no way to take care of these kids. I can't do this. I mean, I can only imagine being age 30 with these kids. You know, she was just a mess. Anyway, nevertheless, we went back into the system. At some point, we ended up with the adopted father's brother, who was married and had five biological children. And he decided to take me and my younger adopted sister, who was about a year, maybe not quite a year younger than I am. We lived with them for a couple of years, maybe two or three years. And then he was killed in a plane crash with his oldest biological son. Mm. And this was, I would have been around 10 years old, somewhere around there. You know, I don't have a lot of memory of my childhood. I think it was just so chaotic and we got moved around so much. And there was so much just kind of fear and not knowing where we were going to land. But I do remember being 10, 10, 11-ish and being in a church in Downey, California, which is a suburb of LA. And on the right of me was my 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 aunt, which should have been on my adopted aunt, with her four remaining kids at the funeral. And then on the left of me was my first adopted mother and she was still widowed. And that's kind of really all the memory I have. I just remember sitting in this church at this funeral, thinking to myself, what now? You know, what now? I mean, we're running out of people, mm. you know, to take care of us. And I just, I just, that's all I really remember. We ended up staying, we ended up moving, so did some different homes, staying with different friends. I don't necessarily know that they were foster families. A couple of them were really nice to us. And then when I was a like, eighth grade, ninth grade, somewhere in there. The first adopted mother had remarried. We went back with her. Unfortunately, she had married somebody who was extremely violent. He brought a son into the family from a previous marriage. I remember that time was very scary and very violent. Um, I ran away a lot. My older sister, Lori, at that time had come back when we did, 
and she ended up running away like at 17 to the Bay Area. She never came back. Anyway, had gotten a job, a high school job. I was washing dishes. <laughs> I was washing dishes in a convalescent home. I met somebody and started dating them, and I had a little girlfriend. Her parents kind of knew what was going on. Within a matter of a month, couple of months, they told me, they said, you know, Chris, why don't, why don't you just stay here on our living room floor? Why don't you just sleep here? <laughs> and I did. And I kind of, that's kind of where I spent most of my high school, just sleeping on their living room floor. And I remember soon after I started staying there, my adopted mother sent her, her husband up to get me one day, one afternoon after work. And I came home from school. He was there. My girlfriend's father, who her family was from Pittsburgh originally, and he was a steel worker. So this is a tough guy. And I really liked him. They were so good to me. They, they were just so nice to me and loving and, and just really nice people. He was out there telling this, this stepfather, uh, you know, my, my adopted mother's third husband, you know, we know what's going on over there and you don't deserve kids and get off my property or I'm calling the sheriff, this kind of thing. And really, that was the first time, Jennifer, in my life that an adult was advocating for me. Right. And, and this is, you were in ninth grade? I was like in ninth grade, yeah, because that's when her and I, I would have been like 16, she was 15, yeah. And they, you know, they just... They just took me in. They just took me in. Mm. They just took me in. I think they just saw a need and they just took me in. So you would stay there from that time after I, that? I felt, yeah, I, and I was safe. I felt safe. Not that I, by that age, I wasn't feeling vulnerable anymore because I wasn't a child. I was a very, I was a teenager. But, mm -hmm. you know, looking back on that, I think, I think it took to get to that time in my life before I, physically felt safe that I was not out of harm you know and anyway yeah you had an yeah. ally yeah you had, a, yeah, had an ally I, yeah yeah mm. and these people just they just they loved me I I I, I know they did I, right. I really I mean I love them and I I think they loved me and do you identify as a double adoptee no not I don't think not really. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I'm just um, wondering if, if I'm clear, you were adopted at four mm -hmm. and then relinquished. And I'm thinking like... Did anybody else adopt me? I think that's Right. Like, yes. you know, like permanently placed on paper. I think, I don't know if the brother and his wife officially ever adopted us. I, okay. I think they did because they had custody of us for... At, at least two or three years. So I, I think they did. I'm, I'm really not sure, to be honest with you, because he was killed in a plane crash and my aunt moved. They had to leave and moved and we were back. We were somewhere with other families. I never saw her again. So maybe a lot um, of this was informal. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw the aunt like maybe two years ago. I just ran into her and all of the cousins and I, Reunited, we're all adults. I mean, it had been, I don't even know what, 40, 50 years, mm. 45, 50 years. Yeah, I thought she had died and I found her up in Santa Barbara. So, yeah, I'm so sorry. The ch oh, it is childhood what it is. was oh, that it is way. What it is. But to meet you, and I did two years ago at the National Association NAP, of, Adopt yeah, of Adoptees yeah, and NAP, Parents yeah. Conference in Indianapolis. Like you're just such a joy to be around. You you you, so you, you. make me laugh. So I, I said you. I don't know before I push record. I said I don't know how much laughing we'll do. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to annoy the listener, but you you to know you is to not even picture all that you've been through in fifty something I, years. I have had I have had truckloads of therapy, and finding my birth family saved my life. Because if you ask anybody in Concerned United Birth Parents, ask any, ask, ask Brian Stanton, ask any of the adoptees that know me from the Cub group here in L.A. I sat in that meeting 
for the first year or two after I had found my birth mom. And I would just, with my elbows on my knees, sitting in the circle, and I would just sob. And the carpet was wet. I would just sob and sob. And there was just so many layers of low self-esteem, low self-worth. I, I just didn't even feel that I was worthy of my fair share of the oxygen on the planet. I think I had guilt. I had so much shame that I had survived this and my other siblings didn't. I have an older foster brother who's who died back in the early back in the late 80s. My younger adopted sister has been a homeless addict since 10th grade. She's 61 years old this year. She took so much abuse. He used to throw her against the wall and split her head open. Mm. And I mean, it went on for all of her childhood. And I, I ran away. And I think I, I, I think a lot of what I did in therapy was trying to work on not feeling responsible. Like I should have done something more, you know, but I was a kid and I was scared of this guy. And, and my whole thing was to get away and to try to just not get hurt and survive, you know, years ago in therapy and in the support group where I really started celebrating, I really started celebrating my life. And one of the things that finding my birth family did for me personally, it was really like I started all over, like even like my childhood, like part of my childhood, like I just felt like it was a whole fresh start. And I know that sounds so, that just sounds so esoteric and, and, and so silly, but I just felt that way. And it, it wasn't easy. I mean, my birth mother and I, when I found her, it took me about two years of searching to find her. She's a surgical nurse in the Midwest. Can I tell you how I found her? Is that, yeah, is that any worth? If you want to. I had searched and I ended up in the support group a little bit before I had made contact with her. I had found her name I, I through an investigator who had helped me. And I, I want to say this because I think it has value. I was self-employed. I was a gardener and I had been a gardener for 37 years. I was probably the only white gardener in Los Angeles. <laughs> I did that for 37 years. And there was a guy who did my taxes. He happened to be a, 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 in the sheriff's department. He was an investigator for the sheriff's department, but he had a tax business on the side with his mom and his, his brother. And he, um, he's Ecuadorian American. You know, he, he has this very deep appreciation for his family. And his, there's a big picture of his mom on the wall behind his desk. I just love it. I mean, this guy had done my taxes for, oh my gosh, over like 30 years, you know, done my taxes for my little business. I had seven employees and all this. During the search for my birth mom, I got so far, but I got st I kept getting stuck. And finally, I would only see Mario about once a year when it was time to do my taxes. So I'm sitting at his desk one day, and one of his bouncers comes in and he says, "Hey Mario, we're we're flying out to South Carolina." He his unit that he was on was child molestation, so he would go out and he'd find these child molesters, and he'd bring them back to court here in Los Angeles. And he would only take he was a seasoned investigator, so. He's, he's older than I am, but he, he would take cold case calls that had gone cold. And so he actually found a lot of the Catholic priests over these last number of years. Anyway, I was sitting at his desk. He's doing my taxes. And this guy comes in and says that. And all of a sudden in my brain, I think, oh, my God, he could find my mom. And I had been searching for her for two years at this point. I, th I had what I thought was her maiden name, but I wasn't sure. So I said to him, Mario, if if I gave you the maiden name of a woman, could you find her? And he he's busy working on my taxes and he points to the desk. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, write her name down as exactly as it's spelled. So I wrote her name down and I kind of slid it across the desk. And after a couple of minutes, he stops my taxes and he looks at the paper and he spins around in his chair and he gets on another computer and he types this in. And then he spins back around and starts working on my taxes again. I'm sitting there and I'm so, so nervous. Because I'm thinking, this is illegal. I'm not supposed to be doing this. These are sealed records. He's a cop. I'm going to go to jail. You know, <laughs> you know, horizontal orange and white stripes, not a good fashion <laughs> statement, you know. <laughs> so, so, so 
all of a sudden this machine starts going and it's spitting out hits and i'm sitting there and i'm looking at this paper as it's getting longer and longer and i'm realizing oh my god my mom's name is on that paper and at the time i would have been 46 47 years old okay so i wasn't a young guy middle-aged all of a sudden the the paper starts to hit the floor and mario he's still working on my taxes and he says who is this person do you know her and i'm thinking oh crap and i go well it's kind of a long lost relative which is true (laughs) and all of a sudden he goes is this your mother (laughs) and i go what the hell i go how did you know and he looks at me he goes chris i'm an investigator Like you can run, but you can't hide, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing. Oh my God. And I just, I was just floored and he completely stopped my taxes, spins around, starts scooping up this paper and he looks at me and he says, Chris, this is what's important in life. And that's the first time that anybody had said to me that anything to do with, with my life, the past history of my life had any worth Mm. or value at all. Right. Mm. He told me that. My tax guy, he's a cop. (laughs) See, shout out shout out to the cops out there. The good ones. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I just I I was so stunned because here I was ready to be marched off with matching bracelets, you know, behind my back. Did he know you were an adoptee? No. He didn't know anything. He just, I was a customer of his for over 30 years and he knew I was a gardener and, you know, and I, right. so he was doing my taxes, but I, he's so validated. It's amazing that people that are put in your path, sometimes the most insequential things that they say can have so much weight to our lives. He took a highlighter. He started making some notes and he looks at me, he goes, you give me two weeks. And I'll find your mom. Oh, my goodness. And I went home. And two weeks later, I pull in the driveway at night, coming home with all my workers, with the trailers and the trucks and everything. My wife comes running out the door and she's crying and she's pounding on my Get out of the truck. And she's crying. Her family raised me. She's known me since I was a kid. We're 46, 47 years old. And she's pounding on my window, get out of the truck, get out of the truck. Mario's on the phone. He found your mother. You get another chance. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad you shared that. Because story. she she knows. Yeah. She knew this maniac woman who couldn't protect us, who who married all these crazy ass people. You know, do you know what I'm saying? And I and do. so yeah, you know, at this point, I I believe I had just started going to the support group. I went ahead and I stuck the paper under my computer and there it sat for about five months. <laughs> now, what paper is this? The- well, this is the, I'm sorry, the paper. So I went over to Pasadena and I, I went over to his office the next day and I got the paper with her name on it. And, and here it was, he, he, he had, had all these, these names, same name. You know, you can have the most oddest name in the country and I can guarantee you there's eight other people in the country that have your name. Exactly. It's crazy. You know, you think, we think we're the only Chris Thomason or whatever. And, and we're not, you know, there's, there's, a, there's dozens of us. But anyway, there was people with her name that were in Shawnee Mission, Kansas, and one in Florida, and a couple in Texas, and some in, they're, they're just, but there was one name that was in, in the state in, 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 in uh, the Midwest, and it had, and it was highlighted, and that was her. So you called he, her? So what happened was, I got the paper, he was out of the office at the time, his bouncer was there, and I, he gave me the paper, and I thought, well, how does he know that this is the right one. So I asked his bouncer, I said, how does he know? And he looked at me and said, Hey, I've worked for Mario for eight years. <laughs> if he says that that's the right one, that's the right one. I said, okay. So, <laughs> so I went home and I stuck the paper under my computer and it sat there for like four or five months because it's all about Jennifer. It's all about rejection. Mm, say that again. It's all, it's all about rejection. Mm. It's all about rejection. Right. And, you know, of course, at the time, we're maybe not verbalizing that. But looking back, I realized that's why I, I wasn't right. acting on it. But I want to say a couple things before I forget. I'm so ADD. But 
the birth moms in the group, in the Concern United birth parent group that helped me through the initial phone call, I had been going to the meeting for a, a few months and they, I kept hearing so many of these birth parents talk about, you know, they had never forgotten their children, but they didn't know anything about their children. And I couldn't really understand that because I had been standing next to my wife when she popped out both of our sons. I mean, I held them right after they came out. I was there. I saw it. And I'm thinking to myself, how could you have a baby and not know anything about it? Not even know its gender, not know if it lived. And I kept listening to their stories and it, it was really hard for me. So anyway, when I went ahead and got ready to make the phone call, there was a couple of ground rules from the birth moms. And they told me, if a man answers, hang up. If you get a phone machine, hang up. The other thing that they kept telling me is she's going to know it's you within 30 seconds. And I didn't believe them. And I kept saying, bullshit. <laughs> you know, it's been four. <laughs> It's been 47 years. Right. I'm listening to you ladies tell me you don't know anything about your baby. How, if she, she doesn't know anything about me, but she's going to know it's me in, in 30 seconds. That's an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense to me. How did they explain that? They just would laugh at me. <laughs> like how, would, because, how would a birth mom know in 30 seconds? Because they kept saying we've never forgot about the children that we were coerced into relinquishing. And mm. I just, I didn't really understand it completely. This will tell you what I'm about to tell you will explain a lot of what I didn't understand. Those were the rules. The day came that I was going to call her that day. My wife got up and ready to go to work. We got the kids off to school, put the dogs out. I got my, all my, my, my employees off on their routes she walked out the door and she looks at me and she says, good luck and walked out. And they had told me to call like late morning, middle of the day, picked up the phone, called the number, a man answers. Hello. So I quickly hung up the phone. <laughs> you knew what to do. You have been forewarned. Oh, yeah. I yes. was following the instructions <laughs> to the letter. So I called a couple of the mirth and like, a man answered, a man answered. <laughs> Fire, fire, get out of the building. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, so, so they're like, okay, all right. So they're like, and they just know. Mm -hmm. It's so amazing. This is such a tight club. The 50s, 60s, and 70s, when this happened, it's such a tight club for the birth moms. It's like a sorority. They just know. They know. They all know each other. She probably works. Her husband's got weird work hours like he's either a fireman or a cop or something like that or maybe he's retired so they're already like three steps ahead of me on on, on this so they said call back call back in the afternoon so i called back in the afternoon i got a phone machine and it was a woman's voice and it said hello and it said this is you know the name of the family we're not home right now and so i hung up and all of a sudden i started to tear up because i realized that the voice on the phone machine was the first time I had ever heard my mother's voice. And that was enough to trigger me, just hearing her voice. I called the birth moms and they said, okay, so now we know she probably works. So all we can do is call back at night. And I wanna tell you something that, well, I'll, I'll say it in a minute, but I called back around dinner time and a woman answered, and this is exactly how the phone call went. She said, hello, and I said, hello, is Lillian there? And she said, this is Lillian. And I said, well, my name is Chris, and I'm actually looking for a Lillian. And I went back to her maiden name, L Lillian Beck, which was her maiden name. And she said, there's a pause, and she said, well, that would be me also. And then I said, well, my name is Chris, and I was born at UCLA in Los Angeles around this date. Would that date mean anything to you? And without a pause, she said, how did you find me? And what did that take? 15, 15 seconds? I was going to say 10, 15 seconds. Wow. She knew. Mm -hmm. She didn't deny it. She knew. 47 years later, she knew. And the birth mothers had her nailed. Right. 
Wow. They knew. Yeah. They just knew. So as far and, as you hearing her voice on that answering machine, was that because you absolutely knew how good Mario was, that you that this could not be the wrong phone number for her? You know, I have a very high voice for a man, as you can tell. And I've always had a high voice. I'm kind of ashamed of it. But what's funny is all of my birth brothers have this high voice. And her voice just has this resonance or this tone that sounds like mine. And her and I look literally like brother and sister. We just look like twins. That's really all I can explain is that I just knew that it was her, even from her voice. And, you know, she went on and had three more sons. She got married nine months or 10 months after I was born. And she went on and raised a family and had three more sons. The oldest son that her and her husband raised he was the quarterback of the high school football team and all stuff. They all played football. I was, I was an athlete too. The oldest son that they raised is kind of the golden child. He had some problems at the beginning when he found, you know, because he never knew that he wasn't the oldest son. I was raised as a middle. When I first started talking to my brothers, when we, when I first started talking to them, I had found out that their oldest son that they raised was struggling with this. So I said to the middle brother and the youngest, the younger brother, you know, is he going to be okay? And they all said, oh, he'll be fine. You know, he's got to stick up his ass, but he'll, he'll get it out and he'll be fine. But the thing was, they said to him, David, have you seen pictures of this guy? He looks more like mom than we do. And it's true. It's true. I look more like mom than any of them. It was hard for them to kind of deny that I wasn't related. Before we go on, too long. I wanted to to say something about, I I think this is kind of a good part of my story too, because because my wife and her parents had known me for so long, they had known me most of my life. My birth mother and I spoke in secret for four and a half years. I think I shared this with you when I met you either at NAP or when we were at the summit. We spoke in secret for four and a half years because she had never told anybody that she had given away a child. We got caught after four and a half years. She's a surgical nurse, and she used to drive to a big box retail store in a mall, and she'd park in the alley behind the stores, and she'd lock her doors after work, and then she'd put on her sunglasses and pull her sun visor down and sink down in her chair, and her and I would talk on the first of every month on our cell phones, and we would have these phone dates on the first of every month, and this went on for four and a half years. When you told me over four years, I thought... Wow. Like, like I asked myself, could I have done that? So why do you think you were able to be a secret for so long? I was in therapy at the time. I was so, I guess for a lack of a better word, needy. My self-esteem was so low and so dysfunctional, not intact. I truly believe I had no business being a parent. I have two wonderful sons, but I know that they've suffered from this. I had said that in therapy and in the support group that this family that I found basically had harmony. It was, it had harmony. It's not a perfect family, but it's a heck of a lot better than anything I had ever been in or seen. Hmm. And I really felt what business is it of mine? What right do I have this is the way that the cards have been dealt to have to go through this whole trauma of trying to tell her sons. I didn't want my birth mother to have to go through the trauma or the hassle of telling her family, of exposing herself because she was so ashamed of this. She was so ashamed. She had told me dozens of times that she had so disappointed her parents. And you know, the fact that her parents took her secret to their grave, They never told anybody. I think in her mind, she was never forgiven Mm. because she's still, even to this day, I just saw her a couple weeks ago when I was back in the Midwest and she still is ashamed of this and she still struggles with this. And I mean, we've known each other for 23 years now. At the time, to answer your question, I just couldn't do that to her. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't do it to her. I was grateful for what I was getting what was possible, what was possible, because there were people in the cub group. There were people in the concerned United birth parents 
there were other adult adoptees and there was one or two who, who had found a grave and there were some that they, they couldn't find their parents. Uh, this one guy, Dan Sandifer, he couldn't find his birth parents. The, the adoption agency had destroyed his record. I mean, there were just, I was having secret phone calls. I, I was doing better than a lot of others. Mm-hmm. Grateful for what I was getting. And the therapist that I was seeing who only sees adoptees, birth parents, adoptive parents, and kids in foster care, she only sees the triad. She was kind of taking me down a path at the end of that four and a half years that this was probably all I was going to get. As frustrating as it was, I was kind of, I wasn't okay with it, but I was starting to accept. Would she answer your questions? I know you had a lot of questions. Oh, we talked, for those four and a half years, I knew all about my birth family. She told me about aunts and uncles and cousins and my brother. Mm. I knew about everybody. I knew about my nieces and my nephews. I mean, during that four and a half years, you know, one of the brothers had two sons. The wife got pregnant, had a third son, and that son was in nursery school by the time we were, we got caught on the phone. I mean, life goes on. I had, I had an, I had an aunt who I, I just was so fascinated, hoping I would get to meet her one day. She was kind of the matriarch of the family. And sadly, towards the end of the four years, one time she, my birth mother, we were having our monthly phone call and she came on the phone to tell me that this aunt had, had gotten, gotten cancer. And about a year and a half later, she died. And I missed meeting her by just a couple of months. Mm. So life goes on. One of the brothers had gotten divorced and started dating. And then after four and a half years, he got married again. To just to also paraphrase this, each month towards the first of the month, I couldn't keep food down. Like two or three days before the first of the month when we would be having these phone calls, I would try to eat something and it would come back up because I was so insecure that she wasn't going to pick up the phone or she wouldn't call me and I would be left again. And I was an adult. Mm. I was a dad. I was a husband. I was coaching little league for my sons. I mean, I was in the PTA. I, you know, I had seven employees as an employer. I was so insecure inside. How did she get discovered? We got caught. (laughs) That that sounds interesting. You know, there's always a sleazy side to this. (laughs) You two got caught. How did you get caught? We got caught on the phone by her husband. I went back and visited her in secret during the four and a half years. I think after that third year, I went back. I went back to visit her and I, I stayed in a, in a, in a hotel outside of town in another town. We called it the hideout. <laughs> and we had like this whole, after, let me tell you, after two years of these secret phone calls, she had a PO box. We had a PO box in another town where I could send her gifts and cards and we had separate phone numbers. And I mean, we oh, I didn't whole, know that part. We had this whole <laughs> system worked. Oh my God. It was like espionage. It was this whole <laughs> It was this whole system. It was it was messed up. Were I mean, you telling really... other people about it, or were you keeping it a secret oh, yeah. too? No, I I was I was potty mouth. I I just I was a potty. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't hold it in. But yeah, but people couldn't understand it. They're like, okay, this is me- this is whack. This is whacked up. This is messed up. But you know how could they understand it? They were raised by their biological families and taking them for granted if they did or not. But mm-hmm. when you don't know anything about yourself and after that many decades, you just think you crawled out from beneath a rock or hatched from an egg, you know? So I wanted to say something. And I think, again, it, it has value. This is about love and understanding. My ex-wife, I came out 13 years ago. She always knew I was gay. I always knew I was gay. I married her back in the mid eighties because I loved her family so much. You know, I think she thought she could change me and I thought I could hang in there, but I knew if I married her, um, I would have a mom and a dad. Mm. And that's what I wanted more than anything in the world. Right. And the day that I walked out the door after two or three years of secret phone calls, I had to leave at four o'clock in the morning. It was dark and I was going to take the bus to downtown LA and then walk over to Union Station and take the train out to LAX. Because she had to take the kids to school and she had to get my workers going on the routes. And I walked out the door that morning at four o'clock in the morning. I was scared to death of what I was going to go do. That I was good enough. That I was smart enough. These people were college educated. I was a dirt gardener. I just... I just wanted to know my mom. I just wasn't sure I was good enough. And I walked out the front door 
And she looked at me and she goes, hey. And I looked around and she goes, just remember, whatever happens, you're coming home to people who love you. Mm. She said that because she knew, she knew, she knew what I had been through, all the different homes I had been in, you know, and, and all that. So anyway, I had this wonderful four days with my birth mom. Got off the plane with flowers. I had told my therapist the last visit. She said, let's talk about your fears. And I said, well, I just, I don't want to cry. And and she's tough. She's from the Midwest. I mean, they shovel snow and they have to scrape their wind, windshields because it's ice. She's tough. She sees blood. You know, and I'm this mushy Californian huggy squeezy. You know, I said, if I cry, that's going to be a sign that I'm weak and she won't want me as her son. That's where I was. Mm. My therapist just laughed and she said, Chris, your birth mother, she's had feelings about this. Trust me, she's going to be, you know. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. You know, she's just really tough. So I get off the plane and I have these flowers. There's only two people in this tiny little terminal. And I had to take a little puddle jumper flight from St. Louis. <clears throat> There's only one other person on the plane. There was two pilots and a and a flight attendant. There was more crew than there was people <laughs> on the plane. <laughs> and I couldn't even talk to the guy next to me because I'm thinking, he may be related to me. So, you know, he's asking me, oh, what are you going here for? You know, and I, I, you know, yeah, that's how bad. Okay. So anyway, because <laughs> we're still talking in secret. You know, right. this might be my cousin. Right. This could be a cousin, you know. <laughs> So anyway, I get off the plane. There's only one woman standing in this little terminal in the middle of a cornfield. And I walk over to her and she had a hard time looking at me. And I was kind of looking away too, because we look so much alike. It's shocking for your brain, for the synapse in your brain to try to absorb something like that. It's, it's almost like a, like a, it's a shock. I walked over and I handed her the flowers and she, and we're hugging. You know, when you hug somebody, there's a natural time when you disembrace, it's just a natural feeling of when you disembrace. Mm -hmm. So she started to disembrace and I whispered in her ear, no, no, not yet. I'm not done. Mm. And she pulled me in. She mm. pulled me in again. So we stood there for probably three or four minutes, just hugging. And all of a sudden I hear this voice and she says, are you okay? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? And she goes, yeah, I'm okay. And she was crying. <laughs> wow. Was yeah. it, so, so it was just the two of you. It was no one else. Just the two of us standing mm -hmm. there and the little, the little TWA girl with her t-shirt on, she had closed the door and taken off because that was the only flight. And it was just the two of us standing in this little terminal and that was it. And, you know, tra my, my therapist, Tracy, she had her nailed. She knew she, and she was crying. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a quote that, that you shared with me when we talked before now, and that was the only good secrets are Christmas and birthday gifts. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so for a listener that may be going through what you experience one year into two, into more years of being a secret and having to do what you did, what, what would you say to them? Oh, gosh, I mean, you said a, a lot. You you you, yeah. you shared that you you took the position or the perspective of what was possible because you you were in these groups where people were finding graves. I found a grave to be able to reunite with your birth mom and learn about the family and what's going on because life does go on and and you're yeah. getting you're getting more of your chapter one because you are able to talk with her. That's a really hard question. I. I almost feel like the real subject of that or the question, and I, I apologize because I'm not dismissing your question, but I didn't have any control over the secrets that she had kept. I only had control over what I was choosing to be a part of, and that was having a, a relationship with my mother in secret, and I chose that. And I chose that because that was all I was going to get. And, and the way that I saw it was the only other way 
that I could have a relationship with her was by paper and pen mm-hmm. is to write letters. And of course we did that. We did that a lot, but of course I wanted to hear a voice. I was willing to participate in secrets because, because of that, as far as any kind of a question alluding to, you know, making someone else or forcing or putting expectations on someone else to tell them that, look, I'm not going to participate in a secret or something like that. I think any time that we put an ultimatum on something like that, on another person, we're really just ending that relationship. And we're putting, we're, we're forcing something else on somebody that they're not comfortable with. And I really was at this place where I felt like, I think if I just give her the time that she needs, she might be able to work this out. And, you know, one of the things that concern United Birth Parents and, and most support groups will tell you, and, and what you learn in a support group is that you, you learn that everything's a process. I mean, including alcoholism, including a lot of this stuff. You know, you and I shared that in AA, they have the saying, we're only sick as our secrets. And I had a lot of the birth parents telling me that, you know, she just needs time. I was in the support meetings every month yelling and screaming. I was doing it there and not in the supermarket line, not out on the little league field, not in my customers' yards while I was doing their yards. Mm. The place to be angry and scream was in the support group with the people who understood you. That was the place to do it. That was the place to scream and cry and yell and shout. And why can't she get her son back after 47 years? That's where I did it. And the birth moms would scream at me and they'd say, Chris, this is not about you. This is not about you. This is about her inability to pick up the phone, call you, talk to her husband, talk to her sons, and tell them her truth. She couldn't do it. And that was her stuff, not mine. And you know I'm not yelling at you. Oh, no. no. I'm reenacting what they were yelling at me because I couldn't hear it. I was grieving too much. Yeah. I was grieving too much. And I, I but I finally after months and months I, I heard it and I could hear it and I I could swallow it and I could digest it and it's a process like anything else. And I was willing to give her the time she needed. And who knows how long else that would have gone on. But it, it took me four and a half years and I may have stayed in it for seven or eight, who knows? But mm-hmm. that's what it took. And we did get caught. You know, her husband found out and it took him another year. He was in the secret for another year. And then finally, I wanted to come back and meet both of them, which I did. And finally, we got caught and he went and told one of the sons and then the secret got out. I don't know if we have time, but I wanted to share something when I came back, because when I said goodbye to her that first trip, I was devastated and she was sobbing. She, At one point in the little terminal, I heard her say, oh, God, not again. So I knew where her heart was. My therapist had said, you know, this is all you're going to get. So I knew that was probably the only time I was ever going to get to meet her. So I got on the plane realizing that that was it, that that was all I was ever going to get. Flew back to St. Louis. I was walking around Lambert International just in a daze. I wasn't even sure. My wife got on the phone with me. She said, where's your wallet? I said, it's in my place. I mean, she knew I was just not focused and I was just walking around lost because I was devastated. I wasn't even in the right terminal. I was in another building and... She's like, okay, listen to me, listen to me, get your ticket. Where's your ticket? Where's your wallet? I mean, she was trying to get me to focus so I could get on the right plane to get home because I was just, I, I just couldn't focus. And on the way home, I was so, I was just crying most of the way home. And I sat in the back of the plane. After about an hour or two, I looked down and I saw snow. I saw snow and it was April. And I realized, oh my God, we're flying over the Rockies. And I realized, you know, we're getting close to the West Coast and I realized, oh, my God, that's right. You know, my wife and, and her, her mom and dad and her brother and her sister and their their wives and husbands and, and my nieces and my son and, and her aunt and her whole family, which was my family, was going to be in the baggage claim at LAX waiting to, to pick me up. They were all there so excited to hear about this trip. So all of a sudden, by the time we're landing at LAX, I am just I've now just soared and now I'm just soaring on a cloud. I'm so excited to see them and tell them about this really great person I met. And I have a normal mom, (laughs) you know, she's just normal, you know, and we got along. We had this great four days together. It was magical. 
and I get off the plane and I'm racing through the terminal. I'm racing to get down to baggage claim. I'm coming down the escalators and the baggage claim is just packed. You know, it's always packed at LAX. And here's this group of people and they're jumping up and down, shouting, waving their arms. And I see them and they're all smiling and yelling at me. And my son bows on top of, of my brother-in-law's shoulders and they're all just can't wait. And I'm working my way through the crowd and I'm heading towards my wife. And as soon as I start to get close to her, her entire face of excitement and elation all of a sudden changes. And I'm just literally feet from her and I go to hug her. And all of a sudden she puts her hand over her mouth and she has this complete look of fear. Just like, oh my God, she can't believe what she's seeing. And she covers her mouth and she starts to tear up. And I go to hug her and I go, what's wrong? And she goes, oh my God, your heart is healed. She said her and her mom, her mom was in the same kind of look of horror. And they both told me that as I got closer, it looked like I had had a facelift. Mm. I physically, physically looked different. Do you know that someone said that to me? And I'm going to say her name, Jane Strauss. She's a filmmaker. Yeah, yes. Strauss, yeah, she lives over here in Laverne in Los Angeles. Yeah, I know. Yeah, her. she. <laughs> She told me that because she yeah, filmed me before I had my original birth certificate, before mm-hmm. I knew anything about who my birth mother was, because everything happened so fast once I did get that document. So she filmed before and then after, and she described it the same way. I didn't really see it. So, yeah. like, you know, I'm looking at the film before and after. I didn't see it, but she absolutely saw it. And I trust her. Like, I don't think she made that up. I think yeah. there is a, a lift that goes on. And it wasn't just my wife. It was my mother-in-law who was standing right next to her. And right. she had her hand over her mouth and this look of fear. Oh my and she said, oh, my God, it looks like he had a facelift. It was this huge burden that had been lifted off my shoulders mm. that I finally wasn't being that I there was it was no longer a lie and a secret. And I. It so validated my wife. That was the word I used when I went to the meeting the next month. And I couldn't even sit down. I was walking around the circle. I'm so glad. And the month were like, yeah, they you were shared that. I really am glad you shared that reunion, mm-hmm. what it was like to come out of being a secret. Mm-hmm. To, yeah. Yeah. It, it was so unhealthy. It was so unhealthy. And, and of course, you know, with what I just shared, my whole life had been nothing but secrets and lies. Mm-hmm. My name, my my sexuality, my just everything, my family, the people were raising me, just all of it. It was I was just polluted and contaminated with a closet with skeletons of lies. And I think I met back in twenty twenty one at the NAP National Association of Adoptees and Parents Conference in Indianapolis, I met a free Chris. And I met him and saw him and hung out with him again at the Untangling Our Roots in Louisville. And so to honor your time, let's just talk a little bit about the experience for you at the summit this year. I think two of the things I'm going to share this week when I go to the meeting, our local meeting here, one, I, I'm just fascinated with these new, is it acronyms? The the, mm-hmm. N, the um, NPEs and the MPEs, right? you know, and the, and the new language and the verbiage. I don't know how new it was to you, but it was Very really new. new to me. It's still new yeah, to me. Yeah, it's still new to me. And I did some research because, you know, I did a workshop. I shared with you that I did a, a workshop at the, at the Entailing Our Roots. And so I, I did some research um, before I went so that I made sure that I could could include and bring that segment of the attendees into the workshop because I tend to come more from the adoption, foster care, birth parent thing. But, you know, it's interesting because when we were setting up on Thursday, there was about, oh, I don't know, 10 of us. We went out to lunch that day. We took a break and, and listening to Cara from Seattle, who, you know, is with Right to Know, she really edumacated me on this, um, you know, donor conceived and the the MPEs, the misattributed parental event, because by definition, that includes 
you and me. Because being adopted, we were not raised by our biological parents. We were raised by people that were not biologically related to us. And even if you were in foster care, under the definition, misattributed paternal event, we fall into that category. Mm -hmm. So I think that was one of the things that I'm still kind of wrapping my brain around and, and, and really letting it soak into my, my brain. I guess the other thing is these two organizations, NAP and then Right to Know, kind of merging together because in what is it in numbers we have strength or yeah power and you know, numbers yeah power and power and numbers right mm-hmm. it just makes sense to me and I think those were two of the things that I really learned and um, it, it's amazing that that's really what I took away and it was it was not what I expected it was it was a lot of education for me too yeah and I actually met my first sperm donor I had never met a sperm donor before (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're they're really funny people oh Jeff was just a joy to sit next to and listen to and yeah yeah so I'm learning by leaps and I met two or three there I mean listen I think it's got to take an enormous amount of courage and guts to go to something like that and 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 say no I'm a sperm donor I Mm -hmm. mean it's got to take courage. I think mean, this stuff takes balls. And the three that I met were all had great personalities. They were funny and they just had a really good take on it. And they took the fear, I guess, what's, what am I looking for? They, not the fear, but they took the ickiness out of it or they took the uncomfortableness out of it, mm-hmm. I guess. When you meet them and you talk to them and then you kind of, you kind of forget that they did this donation of their sperm and it's like it's all of a sudden and it's not i don't know i don't know if i'm making any sense there's a lot of stigma around all this stuff there's just a lot of stigma Mm -hmm. and how their perspective has changed from when they did that or decided years ago to be a part of that they did not foresee like all the things that are coming up at a conference yep behind that decision they just didn't see that but for people to participate, it shows to me the willingness to grow and, and change and, and look at things in a new mm-hmm. way and support one another. I think that was yeah. the biggest thing I got about this collaboration that both groups, NAP and Right to Know, want to support the members of each group. And yeah, I like that. It was so good to see you again, and you're so funny. You have me <laughs> laughing, and I just oh my god, you're like like you bring the party, like you bring the party. Such a blessing <laughs> to see you again. Yeah, it was so I was so excited to see you again at Antenna, which you had you had asked me about, and I kind of shared a little bit about through the adoption land adoption adoptee land that kind of thing over the years, and I I kind of shared with you two of the things that I think which we just talked about was patience and acceptance. You know, if I've not learned anything from this was patience and acceptance, which I had none of, by the way, I had none of this when I started this journey, gosh, 23 years ago, looking for my birth mom. I had no patience at all. And, and acceptance was something I just hadn't really learned that much about. But those were two things that I think this has given me. And I'm for that. I'm extremely grateful. It was such an honor to meet you again. It's such an honor to see you again. So I'm so glad that we ran into each other. I am too. And is there anything I didn't ask you you want to share? We talked about something pretty important before recording that we wanted to talk about. So, but for now, is there anything you want to say? I can think of, you know, I have a couple great stories, but it's You got more than a couple great stories. (laughs) That are real. They're just so... There's such great lessons to learn. They're about acceptance and about fear. And, and, and when you think fear is there and it's not, they're just huge and they're great stories. But yeah. it's for another time. So it's for next time. Thank so. you, Chris, for taking the time to Thank have you. this conversation with me. It's been Thank fantastic. Thank you for letting me share my story. Thank you for being transparent and vulnerable. Um, I think that that is such a gift to the listener so you, I appreciate you, it you give us such a great platform to to heal and to help share our stories with other people who may be going through the same stuff it's hard stuff it is and and it takes perseverance but you can do it you can do it
Chris acknowledges that therapy played a major role in helping him come to a realization that he was no longer obligated to hold so many secrets and lies. Though he married the daughter of the last family who raised him after high school, and from that relationship have two great sons after 25 years of marriage, therapy was the reason he was able to come out as a gay man living his truth in 2009. Chris being moved around so many times as a little person is heartbreaking. I still sit with that and how in time he found a family to receive the safety every child deserves. I smile when I think of Mario, the tax accountant, slash investigator, slash cop, unknowingly helping Chris search for his birth mom with only a name, saying, Who is this person? Do you know her? Is this your mother? And then saying upon learning from Chris that he was indeed looking for his birth mother. Chris, this is what's important in life. That gave me chills. I have had the opportunity to attend an enjoyable Concern United Birth Parents event years ago and meeting wonderful birth parents who have much wisdom for adoptees in reunion. I love how members of Cub guided Chris on how to navigate the phone call to his birth mother. Who knew? It proved to be a winning formula that led him to getting to know her and the rest of his maternal family. Chris said finding his family saved his life, and I can understand that. Reunion can give us adoptees a better sense of our place in the world. There's a movie that I've watched countless times that I highly recommend, Secrets and Lies, where the main character finds her biological mother only to be kept a secret from others until she isn't. It reminds me of Chris in reunion with his birth mom. It can be painful for an adoptee whose choice to remain a secret in exchange for information and connection is their personal decision. Thank you, Chris, for having this conversation with me. I agree that learning to celebrate your life is a gift you give to yourself. We can all hope to come to that emotionally soothing place. I love that you currently attend support meetings with Cub, helping other adopted people and birth parents navigate the reunion process. I picture the entire room lighting up with laughter, tears, learning together, and being set free from secrets by your participation, just as I am with you each and every time we fellowship. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash land. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs>